0: Let us uh, turn our attention here to Luke, the 7th chapter, verse 19. And John, that is, John the Baptist, calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? When the men were coming to him, they said, John the Baptist, have sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? And in that same hour, he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits. And unto them, unto many that were blind, he gave sight. And then Jesus answering said unto them, go your way and tell John what things ye have seen and heard. How the blind see, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor is the gospel preached. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. And when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they who are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately... Are in king's courts? But what went ye out to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way before thee. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves being not baptized by him. And the Lord said, Whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling one to another and saying, "We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned to you, and ye have not wept. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say, he hath a devil." The Son of Man is come eating and drinking, and ye say, "Behold, a gluttonous man and a winebibber, a friend of publicans and sinners." But wisdom is justified of all her children. We are reminded that the appearance of John the Baptist in the wilderness caused a great deal of excitement in the land of Judea. The prophetic voice had been silent for some 400 years. The last word that they had from the prophets is before the coming of the Messiah, that God would send them Elijah. Now, Elijah was a strange bird. Do you realize that the public ministry of Elijah lasted but a few days? I mean, he was one of these characters, a recluse, a hermit, living out in the wilderness, in the desert, and he suddenly would just appear and then disappear. You remember it was in the days of King Ahab that he just walked in one day and said, King Ahab, it ain't gonna rain till I say it's gonna rain, and walked out. I don't guess anybody took him very seriously till days and weeks and months went by and it didn't rain. I mean, that's what he said, it ain't gonna rain till I say it's gonna rain. And so they began to look for it. I mean, they turned the land upside down. King Ahab sent messengers into the neighboring kingdoms, requiring oaths of those neighboring lands, the kings, as to whether they were harboring John the Baptist in their midst. And all the time you remember John, John the Baptist. I'm getting them confused here. Elijah in their midst. Elijah was hiding out down in the creek, being fed by the ravens till the creek dried up. And then he went up to Zarephath, and the widow took him in. He holed up up there for three and a half years. And then as suddenly as he had appeared the first time, he appears again and challenges Ahab to a duel. Your God against my God up on Mount Carmel. Bring your prophets. We're going to have a face-to-face confrontation. You know the story of how the fire fell from heaven, consumed the offering, and the prophets of Baal were slain. And then one day later, Elijah was heading for the hills, scared to death, running for his life from wicked Queen Jezebel. Do you you understand they saw Elijah two or three days in a a three-and-a-half-year period? He just sort of came into the picture and out of the picture and into the picture and out of the picture, and now... Four hundred years ago, they said before the Messiah comes, Elijah's gonna come, and now out there in the wilderness, here's one who looks a lot like Elijah. He wears that girdle of camel skin. I'm sure that was pretty rough. <clears throat> did I show you I did where'd my seraphi go? I showed me you my serapi last week, didn't I? Yeah, okay. You weren't here, how would you know? Anyway. <clears throat> I've got this wonderful serape from up there in the mountains in Santa Maria Popolo. Made by hand. Made out of the wool of these black sheep. But I tell you, that thing scratches. It's warm. It's nice. But it scratches. Can you imagine wearing a girdle made of camel skin? I mean, that's pretty rough. And he looks like Elijah. He's fiery-eyed. He's weird. He acts strange. He lives out there in the desert. A hermit. And... He comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. Do you understand then why the excitement is being generated in the land of Judea as they see this one who looks an awful like what the prophet said would come before the Messiah comes? One to prepare the way. But with Jesus' public ministry beginning, John's ministry begins to fade. And it is not long before God providentially removes John from the picture. He criticizes King Herod, saying it's not lawful for him to have his brother's wife. And the next thing we know, John's thrown into prison. God plucked him out of the picture so that there will be no rivalry between John the Baptist and Jesus. And so John, all this while, has been sitting in Herod's prison... He will, of course, we know the end of the story, eventually be executed at the request of Salome and Herodias. But he's sitting there in that prison. And finally, he can stand it no longer. He sends messengers to Jesus with these surprising words. Are you he? Are you the one that was prophesied to come? Or should we look for another? Are those surprising words to you? I mean, you know, we say, wait a minute, John, you're the one who pointed him out in the first place. Don't you remember? You're the one who testified that you saw the heavens open, the Holy Ghost descending on him like a dove and remaining on him. You're the one who told everybody else, this is he. This is the one I'm talking about. Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Those are your words. Now, what do you mean, are you he or should we look for another? In one sense, these words are not surprising at all. Because John, though he was a great man, our Lord testifies to that, was still a man. Just a man. We like to think that men, if their names appeared in the Bible, you know, they're a little bit superman. You know, they didn't put their pants on like we put our, I don't guess they wore pants. But if they wore pants, they, They, you know, they didn't put their pants on quite like we put our pants on. They're cut above everybody else. Do you know how many times the Bible has to stop and remind us? Elijah, James says, was a man of like passions to you and me. He's just like us. He wasn't superhuman. He's just like you and me. We like to think a man like Elijah's not like us. You know, he, he's better than we are. He's Superman. That's not the case. John the Baptist was a great man, but he's just like us, and he's subject to the same infirmities, and you stick me in a prison cell for a couple of years and let me rot. And I've got some questions. I've got some doubts. I go into depression. Don't you? My faith wavers. I want to ask God, what in the world are you doing? I want to say, are you he? Or should I look for another? And on the words, on the one hand, it reminds us that John is made of the same stuff we're made of. And let's consider his circumstances. You see, John is not out there in the crowds watching and witnessing the wonderful works of Jesus. John is not sitting there listening to the wisdom pouring forth from his ears. Everything John is hearing about Jesus is secondhand. No doubt a lot of what John is hearing about Jesus is the criticisms. Oh, and there's been much of it, you know. The criticism that has come forth from the scribes and the Pharisees, those antagonistic to the ministry of our Lord. John's hearing all of that. And so he sends his messengers. He also is a prophet. (coughs) According to the words of our Lord, here in verse 28, he is the greatest of the prophets. We take that to mean that there was no one else in the prophetic office who pointed to Jesus as clearly and precisely as did John the Baptist. He was not a miracle worker. John did no miracle, the scripture tells us. He didn't leave us voluminous writings behind like an Isaiah or Ezekiel. There's no book of John the Baptist. The only John we've got here is the Apostle John, not John the Baptist. So in those sense, we would say, well, how is John the Baptist considered the greatest of the prophets? But if we understand the ministry of the Old Testament prophets to point to the coming of one, the Messiah, no one did that as well as John the Baptist because of his place in history. He could say, there he is. He's the one. And yet, may I remind you, he was still an Old Testament prophet. Jesus says the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the kingdom of heaven has been preached. He is the conclusion of the Old Testament order of things. And the Old Testament order of things was shadowy, fuzzy, dark, mysterious. Do, Do you understand from things we find in the New Testament? They would remind us that even the Old Testament prophets didn't always understand their own prophecies. They didn't understand what it was, what this thing meant, when it was going to be fulfilled, who it was talking about. It wasn't always clear even to the prophet. It was a fuzzy picture of what was coming. And so you see that John the Baptist, greatest of the Old Testament prophets as he was, still ministered in that Old Testament cloud Instead of the bright, clear light of the New Testament age that you and I stand in. And no wonder Jesus will say that he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Greater in understanding, greater as a prophet, the one who understands the mysteries of God. John looked at the ministry of Jesus and couldn't figure it out. We have the advantage of standing in the bright light of New Testament revelation and being able to see what the ministry of Jesus Was all about. So I say on the one hand, this question surprises us. But when we really think about it, it should not surprise us. It reminds us that John was a man just like you and I. Now, first of all, Jesus responds to this question by sending a message back to John the Baptist by these messengers. Now notice that he is, in verse 21, right in the middle of performing these wonderful works, these miraculous things. And then he tells these messengers, now you go back to John and you tell him what you saw. You tell him what you witnessed. You go back and tell him how the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and to the poor the gospel is preached unto them. John asked, Am I he or should I be looking for another? Now you go back and you tell John what you just saw. Now why should those things answer the questions of John? Well, because that's what the prophets predicted would occur when Messiah came. A number of places you'll see this. Look back in Isaiah. Isaiah 35, Isaiah the 35th chapter, you'll see in verse 1, it speaks of this day when the desert rejoices and blossoms like a rose. And, of course, the Jews understand this as the days of the Messiah's Messiah's reign. Look at verse, um, let's say, 4. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out in streams in the desert. You see how this phenomena of the deaf hearing, the blind seeing, and so forth, is connected with the appearance of the Messiah. Go to Isaiah 61, another passage. This, by the way, was the scripture that Jesus read in Luke chapter 4 when he went back to his hometown of Nazareth, went to the synagogue, they hand him the scroll, he opens it up to this spot. Isaiah 61, verse 1, and he begins to read. Let's read it. Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those that are, abo- that are bound, and so forth. And when he got through, he said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. So so you understand then why these words of Jesus. Go back and tell John what you just saw. How the, da- the, the, the deaf hear, the blind see, the, the lame leap. How the poor have the gospel preached unto them. Go back and tell John. And that should answer his question. Now what is even more striking... Oh, I don't say more striking because the findings of archaeology in no way give us new revelation. They just confirm what the Bible says. But in the last, well, let's see, in 1992, a manuscript was published at one of the Dead Sea Scroll fragments uh, called 4Q521, in case you want to look it up and read it. 4Q means simply it was found in cave number four at Qumran. Uh, 521 is the number given to this little fragment. It was published in 1992, about eight years ago, what was on this fragment. It was a fragment concerning the coming of the Messiah. And it gave a number of things that would identify the Messiah when he came. And I'm, I'm really condensing this. I'm just going to give you a short quote here. This is found in this little fragment. For he will heal the wounded and revive the dead and bring good news to the poor. It's almost exactly what Jesus says to these messengers to go back and tell John. The point being is that that fact that it was known in that day, the day and time, that these in fact would be the identifying features of the Messiah. And Jesus is basically saying to these messengers, go back and tell John that you have seen performed the very things that you have been taught to expect. In the appearance of the Messiah. That it is not some secret message that Jesus is sending back. It was the thing that the whole nation was expecting to see. These kind of phenomena. Now once the messengers leave. Notice verse 21. They depart. Jesus begins to give a eulogy concerning John the Baptist. You know what a eulogy is? We generally think of them at funerals. Logos in Greek, a word. You, it means well or good, so a eulogy is a good word. To say a good word about somebody is to eulogize them. Here Jesus gives a eulogy concerning John the Baptist. But the first thing I want you to notice is that John never heard this. I mean, John's in prison. He's not there. And the messengers that Jesus sent back to John, they've already left. All of these wonderful things our Lord is about to say about John the Baptist, John never hears. Isn't that strange? He didn't know how Jesus felt about him. He didn't know the high opinion that Christ had of his ministry. And I I need to stop for a moment to say that there's a... I think that's very true in a lot of cases of Christians in this world. They go through this life thinking of themselves as unprofitable servants when in the fact the Lord says this is my good and faithful servant you see they go through life not thinking of themselves very high in the eyes of Christ but in fact Christ knows who they are he knows them by name he has his eye upon them again I point you back to Antipas who Jesus says my faithful martyr was put to death Back in the days, the early days of the church at Pergamos. And we have absolutely no idea who Antipas was from history. We have absolutely no idea. It really doesn't matter. Jesus knew. He is my faithful martyr. Now, Antipas may not have thought himself very faithful at all. Who knows? But Jesus thought he was. And so Jesus here is commending the ministry of John the Baptist. I want you to notice several things about John's ministry. The first thing that sticks out to us here is that it was a ministry from God. Remember John 1, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. It is a God-sent ministry. It is a ministry from heaven. In fact, that is the question in Luke 20 that our Lord asked his opponents. You remember they've been asking him question after question after question, trying to trap him. And he says, now, now boys, it's my turn. You know, I get asked you a question. Okay, they said, okay, we're ready. You know, go ahead, shoot. Well, what's the question? And he says, the baptism of John. Was it from heaven or was it of men? You you understand what he's asking. Was the baptism of John, was that something God sent him to do? Was that a heaven-sent ministry, a heaven-sent thing? Or did John just do that on his own? Is it just man-made? And they said, oh, oh, oh uh, I think I see what he's doing here. You see, if we say it was from heaven, he's going to say, then why weren't you baptized? And if we say it was just a man, the people are going to stone us because they believe John was a prophet. And they said, I don't believe we can answer that question. That's the question. The ministry of John the Baptist, was it from heaven? Or was this just something, you know, he's just living out there in the desert, standing out in the sun too long one day, said, you know, I'd like to go baptize a bunch of folks. I'd like to dump people in the water. Was this something God sent him to do, or was it something he cooked up on his own? And clearly, as we begin to see here, no, this was something God sent him to do. In fact, notice verse 29 and 30. To receive the baptism of John the Baptist, in verse 29, was to what is called here justify God. Now, we think of justification as the doctrine of God pronouncing sinners not guilty because of their faith in Christ. God acting as the judge. And so when we think in terms of justifying God, we, we get all confused. What do you mean? I'm, I'm not in the place of justifying God. God's in the place of justifying me. But sometimes the word justify is also used in the sense of vindicate. These who received John's baptism vindicated God. Basically, they declared that God was right and they were wrong. They took God's side against themselves. Notice the next verse in verse 30 To not be baptized was to, notice the phrase here, reject the counsel of God against themselves. In other words, to submit to John's baptism was to submit to the will of God. To reject, refuse to be baptized by John was to refuse the will of God. Is that clear? In other words, this was something John was doing that was from God. And to ignore it, to turn up your nose at it, to refuse it, was to refuse the very declaration of God of what was your duty, what you ought to be doing. To be baptized was to vindicate God, to declare that, yes, this is right, this is true. Is that obvious? I mean, maybe I'm too elementary. I mean, that's, that's just basically saying, hey, this is something you, sh- you should be doing. That's clear here. Second thing is, it was a negative ministry. Did you see that in verse 30? They've rejected the counsel of God against themselves. It's not that God is coming to them, patting them on the back, saying, Good old boys, you know, y'all are all right, you're just fine. God is coming with a gripe, with a charge against them. God has something against them, namely their sin. And so to reject the baptism of God was to reject this verdict This charge, this bone to pick that God had with them. Do you understand then this is a negative ministry? John the Baptist is not coming along saying, everything's just fine, everything's humpty dory. You're all wonderful people, you're all going to go to heaven. John the Baptist came along and says, you're all going to hell, you need to be baptized. You need to repent and get ready for the Messiah. Of course, he's very diplomatic. That's what he means. Did you go down there to see a reed shaking in the wind? You know, was Bob Dylan saying blowing in the wind? You know, is that all John was? was? he just somebody when the wind blowed this way, he leaned that way. And when the wind blowed the other way, he just, he just changed with the wind. Was that the kind of man he was? Now that's the way we are. I mean, you know, we're real faddish. You know, some, some kid sticks a ring in his nose and every kid in the country has to have a ring in his nose. Some guy gets a tattoo on his ankle, everybody in the country's got to have a tattoo. We're like a flock of sheep, I'm telling you. We, we we have a herd instinct. You know, one of us runs in that direction, the whole crowd. I mean, look at our movies, look at our music, look at our fashion. Was that the kind of guy John was? He just changed with the wind? No, not quite. You remember the Pharisees and scribes, the bigwigs from Jerusalem, go down to his baptism and... He said, well come on boys, get the, you know, get the cushions out. Here comes the, here comes the important folks. Is that what he said? Oh, he said, you bunch of snakes, you generation of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now notice, in that statement, John is saying, what is his message? Wrath is coming. This is not the good news folks, this is the bad news. His ministry basically was a negative ministry. Basically saying to men who thought they were clean in clean society, you need to come down to the Jordan and be baptized to present yourself as one who is ready for the coming of the Messiah. Thirdly, it was a preparatory ministry. It's like the law in that sense. The law does not give the answer, the cure. The law diagnoses the problem. As we say, it's not the medicine, it's the MRI, it's the CAT scan. It won't cure you, but it'll reveal the problem. And that is the way John's ministry worked. And fourthly, it was a divisive ministry. It divided people. You see that again in verse 29 and 30. You've got some who submitted to his baptism. Notice in this case, publicans and sinners. Who submit to his baptism. On the other hand, here's another class. The Pharisees, the lawyers, that's another word for scribes, are rejecting his baptism. John's ministry divided. Men from men. Sheep from goats. It was intended to be a watershed, as it were. To draw some, to run off others. It divided people between two groups. Those who needed saving and those who didn't. Those who needed a Savior and a Redeemer and those who didn't. And so I certainly believe even today there is a work of the law that is necessary in the heart of man. I mean, something's got to convince a man that he needs saving. Something's got to convince a man that he's a sinner. If you don't have law, you don't have sin. I mean, sin by definition is a transgression a man that he has deviated from the righteous standard of God. Now, I'm not talking about preaching the Ten Commandments or anything like that. I'm simply setting before the eyes of men the absolute holiness of God. And in the light of who God is and His righteous character, man sees his deviation. That he skewed, twisted, warped, out of plumb, out of sorts. With a holy God. Because, my friend, and and you say, well, is that necessary for salvation? It's thirsty men who seek the water of life, it's hungry men who seek the bread of life, it's sinners who seek salvation from sin. It must be. And therefore, we see the same type of operation going on in our day. Now, we've got to be careful. Back in Spurgeon's day, he was battling. Against a group who were what he called preparationists, saying that you know you've got to be sorry and you've got to be real sorry before you can come to Christ I mean you've got a sorrow to this amount this extent you've got to repent and you've got to repent to this degree well, I don't believe that for a moment. I would not say that there is somehow you get better by your mourning and your sorrow over sin you get to the point that now you can come to Christ. The question is do you need a savior? you do? There's a Savior who will receive you. That's all. What is it Joseph Hart said? All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of Him. Do you need Him? Then you can come. On the other hand, if you don't need Him, you know, you're not really that sick. you just got a headache and you can take an aspirin and it'll go away. It'll be better tomorrow. Then you don't need saving. But if you're terminal, if you're hopeless and helpless, then there's a Savior who will take your case. And then notice the condemnation that Jesus speaks of John's ministry. Jesus, you, you must remember, of course, at this point, already the scribes and Pharisees are saying all sorts of horrible things about Jesus' ministry. Namely, of course, he's casting out devils. He's doing it because he's possessed of Beelzebub. Why, well, he's got the king of the devils inside him. No wonder he can cast out the devils. You see, they can't deny the miracle, so the only course of action is to slander the power by which the miracle is done. And that's what's been going on now for a while. And so Jesus draws a little word picture here. He says, what will I compare this generation? What are you folks like? Of course, I wonder what he would say about us today. But he says, what, to what will I liken this generation? Oh, well, he says, this is what you're like. You're like children playing in the marketplace. Down in Mexico, we get to go down to the market. It's quite a treat. I'm not sure treat is the word. All the meat laying out with the flies on it. The chickens with their heads still on. Yellow chickens. I don't know why they think yellow chickens is healthy. So all these chickens, they look like a comedian's rubber chicken. And they're laying out there, heads and feet and everything. But one of the things that strikes me about being in the market is the kids. A lot of times you have the children of the people who are the vendors, the sellers in the market. And sometimes you'll see their children sleeping in boxes underneath their tables. They have their merchandise out here and the kids are underneath the table sound asleep, little babies. And then you've got other little kids, the kids of the vendors, the kids of the people who have come to buy. And those kids get together and play. That's what Jesus is making reference to. You're like kids Getting together in the marketplace. And you've got one group of kids trying to get the other group of kids to play a game. You've got one group trying to entice the others to do something, to play. And one group says, okay, let's play a happy game. And the happiest occasion, I would think, what is being meant here, in Israel at least, was the idea of a marriage. Let's play marriage. You know, you be the groom, you be the bride, I'll be the preacher. You know how kids do. Let's play this happy game. And this group says, no, we don't want to play. I said, okay, let's play a sad game. Let's play funeral. You know, you be the corpse, you be the preacher, we'll be the pallbearers. Let's play funeral. That was the saddest occasion in the life of Israel. But these kids are just sitting there, unmoved, unswayed. They don't want to play happy games. They don't want to play sad games. They just remain unresponsive. And Jesus says, that's what this generation is like. John the Baptist came. He came with the bad news. And you say, this guy's weird. I mean, he eats bugs. He lives in the desert. He dresses real funny. You say, this guy's got a demon. We don't have to listen to him. And then he says, the Son of Man. His name for himself. The Son of Man comes with the good news, with the happiness, the glad tidings. And he comes like you, living like you live, eating and drinking the common food and drink of the day in the mainstream of life. And you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a wine bibber. A friend of publicans and sinners. Do you see what Jesus is saying? You're just like those kids that don't want to play anything. And their friends come and try to get them to play the happy game and they don't want to be happy. The friends come and try to get them to see the sad game and the more. No, they don't want to cry. They remain absolutely unresponsive. And as Jesus is pointing out, you've got an excuse ready. No matter whether it's a John or whether it's a Jesus, you've got a reason why you're not going to respond. Well, he hit the nail on the head, didn't he? And by the way, in these verses, notice in verse 34, the Son of Man is come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine in those words by the way he gives you a little prophetic glimpse of what is to come you do remember in deuteronomy 21 there was a law about the incorrigible son the son that wouldn't rebel that wouldn't obey the parents you remember what they were to do they were to bring that son to the elders they were to stone him to death and they were to hang his body On a tree. You remember that? Do you remember the charge that the parents brought against their son? Let me just read it for you. Deuteronomy 21. And they, the parents, shall say unto the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. You see, what those words were indicating was that their son was such an evil person as that he would bring ruin upon the nation if they let him live and they had to put him out. Put him out of the covenant, out of the land. And now Jesus says, that's what you're going to say about me. I'm a wine-beaver and a glutton. And you will put me out of the land. And so they did. Now, I just want you to know, in closing, that as you well know, I don't believe man is very good at much. I do think there's one area man excels in, and that's in the area of making excuses. Never seen anything like it. I mean, we're, we're great when it comes to making excuses. I and mean, we've got biblical examples. You know, Adam, what was his excuse? The, the woman that you gave me, she made me do it. You know, I was just mind my own business. It's your fault. The woman you gave me told me to eat, and I did it. A little later, there's Aaron. I think his takes the cake. You know, Moses came down from outside. And I said, hey, where in the world did this golden calf come from? And Aaron said, well, we just threw the gold in the fire, and there came out this calf. You <laughs> know, it just came out this way. Now the scripture says they fashioned this calf. But Aaron, his story's a little different. We we just threw gold in there and you know, next thing we know, here's this golden calf. What could we do? I guess we just had to had to worship it. And then there's the excuse of old King Saul you know, waiting for Samuel to come to offer the sacrifice. Well, they went into battle and he waited and waited and waited and Samuel didn't ever do his show. So Saul said, well, somebody's got to do it, so I'll do it. He went ahead and offered the sacrifice and then Samuel shows up and says, what in the world are you doing intruding into the office that God would have only the priest to perform? And you know what Saul's reply was? Well, I I waited and waited and waited and, and you didn't show. So I forced myself I didn't want to, but I forced myself. Do you see how good we are at making excuses? It's always somebody else's fault. Their problem. It's not me. Do you understand what Jesus is saying here? And, and if I can sort of bring together what we talked about in the ministry of John the Baptist. That the whole ministry of John the Baptist and it's either its acceptance or its rejection by men all centered around this point. Are you willing to take your place before God and say, guilty, I did it. God, you are right, I am wrong. And what Jesus is pointing out is that until you are willing to take that stance to vindicate God, to take His side against yourself, you are no candidate for salvation. You say, oh, but I walked the aisle, I prayed the prayer, I signed the decision card, I did everything I was supposed to do. The preacher patted me on the back and said, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. My friend, you're headed straight for hell if you have never taken God's side against yourself. That's what the ministry of John the Baptist was all about. For you see, the gospel, the gospel is to be preached to men who have been, to use Bible terminology, shut down. What is the ministry of the law? As Paul concludes his argument there in Romans chapter 3. That every mouth may become stopped. That a bottle stopper is put in your mouth. That you are shut up. You say shut up to what? Shut up to your excuses. That you no longer say. It's them. It's her. It's him. You say, Lord, it's me. And God, it's not your fault. It's not that you made me this way. You put me in this situation where I just had to do it. It's not the fault of your law. As Paul would say, the law is holy and just and good. I am carnal, I am sold under sin, I'm the sinner. It's not that God's laws or His rules is too unreasonable, too strict. You see, that's how lost man thinks. It's God's fault. I mean, what do you mean thou shalt not steal? What did old JJ used to say? If God didn't want us to steal, why did He give us more pockets than hands? You know, it's God's fault. What do you mean? That's how unreasonable can you get? What do you mean don't lie? What do you mean don't commit adultery? Don't lust, don't steal, don't hate Do you see the problem? And what Jesus is pointing out is the ministry of John the Baptist was designed to bring men face to face with where they stood before God. And true repentance is to say, you're right. You're right. I'm guilty. I deserve hell. God, if you do what's right. I'll bust hell wide open. And my friend, that's the best thing that can possibly happen to you because then you become a candidate for salvation. You see, we believe man saved by mercy and grace, and you don't become a candidate for mercy till you plead guilty. You can't say, I'm innocent, but I want mercy. It's the guilty man. And the guilty man alone that can plead for God's mercy. Old Pharaoh Griswold used to say, you can always tell the sheep from the goats because the goats are always butting. He said they always say, but this, but, but what about that? But, but, but what this? And he said, you know, the sheep don't do that. The goats will just butt and butt and butt. How true, how true that is. Well, <coughs> why don't men then embrace the claims of Jesus Christ. They just two reasons. You say just two? Re- yeah, just two reasons. Now I don't mean T W O. T O O. There's just two reasons. They will not turn because they don't believe they're as bad as he says they are, and the cost is too high. So it was two reasons. The price is too much. Too many friends will turn their backs on them. They'll lose too much prestige. They love sin. They love self. They love the world too much. There's just two reasons, you see. And for the Christian, there's just two reasons why he's a Christian. He's too big a sinner not to seek a Savior. The price that Christ paid at Calvary is too high for Him to turn His back on Him. The glory that He sees in the face of Jesus Christ is too glorious, too much beauty for Him to gaze in the face of another. Now where are you? You, you see how the ministry of John the Baptist did a good job of sort of dividing here the watershed. Scribes and Pharisees said, hey, you got the wrong guy. We're not guilty of any of that. This doesn't apply to us. We're exempted. We're, we're not the kind of folks you say we are. We, we don't need what you're offering. We're good people. We're religious people. We're well thought of. You've got the wrong guy. But the publicans, the sinners, said, John, you got us pegged. Exactly right. And we come and we submit and we wait for the appearing of the Messiah. May God give us insight as to which side of that. Continental divide? No, this is the divide for all eternity. Which side of the divide we come down on? Let's pray. Father, help us to understand what our Lord is saying here and the importance of bowing and submitting ourselves to your verdict against us. For us to believe that you are the righteous judge and that what you say is right, that we are exactly what you say we are, just as guilty as you pain us, that our crimes are exactly what you say they are, and the sentence is exactly what you have deemed right and good and just. Lord, may you bring us to the utter end of ourselves, not to destroy us, but to show mercy to open our eyes to the beauty of one who took our demerit upon himself and went to a cross to pay in full for our transgressions and our crimes. That, Father, we would look at that cross and say that curse that fell on Jesus was the curse that should have been on me. The hell that he was experiencing there on that cross is the hell that I should experience throughout all eternity. But he was the righteous one dying in my place the just for the unjust giving himself for me and lord i receive what he has done for me i embrace him as my all in all i forsake the world to know christ lord may you bring us to that point that we might find your mercy and your grace in the cross of jesus christ But Lord, if we come to that cross and we don't believe ourselves sinners, ourselves guilty, ourselves lost and ruined and undone, then what are we doing there? Father, bring us to the end that we might find life in Christ. Work in our hearts. Take the stumbling words of this preacher and make them darts that pierce the hearts of men. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.